You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I'm slowly recovering from being up on the hill in that haze of smoke. We'll part through that later on. If you think they're exaggerating in the news about the haze of smoke, they're not. I had to go up for question period today, try and track down lying John McCallum and find out what his story is because the conservatives aren't doing their job. I'll get to that in a minute. But I had to go up for question period. I'd been up earlier in the day for caucus outs. That's one of the times that reporters get to try and speak to politicians is as they're leaving their caucus meeting. None of them really wanted to talk today. They're all scrambling elsewhere. Again, I was trying to track down John McCallum. Around noon, there started to grow a small group of people smoking pot. And I, and I got some, some shots of them. Um, we were getting shots of them as, um, as things were just getting going. And it's funny, you got these young people out there openly smoking up with their bongs and uh, their joints, and then they see Cameron, they want to, they just want to hide their faces. But by the time I got out of uh, scrumming MPs after question period at 4 o'clock, the crowd was huge, huge, as we keep hearing the politicians south of the border say. So we'll get into that issue a little bit later in the program. But I do want to start with this this problem that I raised last night. And last night it was about John McCallum being the issue, and he still is, and I'll remind you why. But we have a, a, a different problem. And that is that the conservative opposition is falling down in their duty to be an effective opposition. They are falling down on their duty to hold their go- the government to account. Now, they asked some very good questions in question period yesterday. But they did not ask a follow-up to the exchange that we brought you yesterday. And that is between John Broussard, the conservative MP from Barrie, Ontario, asking John McCallum about the millions spent, the millions that we have already documented for you, that were spent retrofitting military bases and moving out soldiers to house refugees that never came up. Let's replay that from yesterday in question period. Member for Barry Innisville. Mr. Speaker, yesterday the immigration minister wouldn't say how much the Syrian refugee program will cost Canadians. He said it will come under budget, but there is no budget. The minister also admitted that 13% of refugees or 3,400 people are still in hotels. Mr. Speaker, the Liberals renovated five Canadian forces bases for 6,100 people, costing $6.4 million. Why did the Liberals blow millions displacing troops over Christmas to house refugees with no intent on using them? You have a Minister of Immigration. Talk about a glass half empty or half full, Mr. Speaker. I had said yesterday that 87% of the refugees have now found permanent housing. That is a very large number, and we should be pleased with it. And the remaining 13% will find permanent housing very soon. 
and my colleague beside me, the Minister of Defence, confirms there is nothing truthful in his comments about defence. All right. So that was McCallum yesterday. And I told you that he lied. I told you that we'd shown you the documents. Let me read to you from the documents. This is the government's response to an order paper question. This is a very formal way of asking the government for facts. And on December 10th, 2015, James Bazan, the Conservative MP for Selkirk Interlake Eastman out of Manitoba, asked the government with regard to Operation Provision and the Canadian Armed Forces support to government's initiative to resettle 25,000 Syrian refugees in Canada. They wanted to know which bases would be used, what the expected number uh, of refugees that will uh, utilize each base for lodging, how many defense and forces personnel will have to leave their living quarters, what's it costing? Harjit Sejan signed off on the government's response, which was tabled in the House of Commons on March the 9th. Harjit Sejan's signature is on the document that I have. And this document shows, for example, that they had not used any uh, refugees, or they had not used any bases to house refugees, but the plan had been 693 at CFB Kingston, 2,139 at CFB Valcarce, 1,500 at Borden. They go through the numbers. They also detail that 370 military personnel were relocated at CFB Kingston. Ten were relocated from CFB Valcarce and none from the other bases. They go through next. This is all on one page. One page that the Conservatives have had for more than a month. One page that they should have turned around and said, the minister's signature's on this. Are you incompetent or are you lying to the House of Commons, which is a very serious charge? You cannot provably lie to the House. Politicians will fudge things. They'll have their own uh, facts. But this is a document from the government that has been tabled in the House of Commons. And then he turns around and says, oh, there's no truth to that. Let me give you the cost. They spent $400,000 on installing ventilation equipment in the Junior Ranks kitchen at CFB Kingston. They spent $2.82 million on projects at CFB Valcarce, including winterizing 10 buildings, at the construction of 31 small units, and electrical updates. At CFB Borden, it was $2.6 million. At CFB Trenton, it was $257,000. I don't know why it's me pointing this out. And I did a report on this more than a month ago now. I don't know why it's me pointing this out and not the conservatives. It's their job. They're the ones that asked the question. But they didn't do it. They didn't ask a follow-up yesterday. They didn't ask a single question about it today. They asked about six or eight questions on Christian Freeland going to L.A. After getting the same answer over and over again, move on, folks. Move on and ask something else. Like, why'd the minister lie? And then show them the documents that you have. But they didn't do it. I was able to speak to James Bazan after question period. And I asked him if he thought Minister McCallum was lying. 
Uh, he definitely misled, and uh, you know we, we are aware of the numbers because they're right there. Almost 400 troops were relocated in anticipation of refugees being placed on base. We know how much the costs were associated with upgrading uh, summer barracks to, to winterize them to accommodate refugees that they never received. Uh, I still feel very strongly that that should not have come out of the operating budget of national defense. It's money taken away from you know the readiness and capabilities of our forces, and uh, that those dollars, uh, even though they they, they believe that those facilities will be utilized more appropriately in the, in the future for the armed forces. It, they're still just cadet barracks and only be used in the summer. I, that last point, these are very good points that James Bazan and the Conservatives should be pushing. But for some reason, the people at OLO, where they have lots of money, they didn't ask that. Now, Bazan did end up telling me that they are going to uh, think about, will they ask another question in question period? Will they ask a point of privilege or a point of order? Will they follow through on some of the procedures that they can do? Well, that's fine. But why not hit them all? That's your job as opposition. They handed you something on a silver platter and you're not doing anything. Let's play Aaron O'Toole now, former uh, Canadian Forces veteran who was standing next to Bazan as I was asking the questions and he jumped in with his own response. And it picks up on the end on what Bazan was saying there. And it explains why this is important, that the government is hiding costs for the refugees in all kinds of departments around the government. This is money that should be coming from immigration, but instead it's coming from the base budget of our military and other departments as well. I would add, um, we had the public safety minister uh, at public safety committee to talk about the cost of the Syrian refugee program. What I found interesting, despite the fact that public safety not only coordinated the entire program through the National Operations Centre, which was already recommended for expansion and improvement because it couldn't handle a major in incident like this, um, not only were they involved, CBSA, the entire department, uh, the minister said that the initiative was funded from within the existing funding envelope, no new funds. I find that difficult to believe. Or other programs were shelved or cancelled to, to work within the existing funding envelope. So I do think already we're, we're over 700 million approaching a billion, and it seems like some departments, to work within their existing envelope of funds, they would have had to definitely have canceled, shelved, or delayed programs. This is something I think each minister uh, that took part in this response has to outline to Canadians so that they can analyze not just the program, which you know we think is, is, is completed and we've tried to work with them on. The fact there was no plan is why they were moving people off military bases, why they were incurring costs on bases, why they were incurring costs or cancelling programming within other ministries. Canadians need to know that what was an election promise, promise turned into a plan put together on the fly that probably cost twice as much, three times as much, as a steady plan that we had outlined with private sponsorship. There's the point. It cost two to three times as much because they rushed. They're having other government departments, be it industry, and I've showcased that. Employees from the industry department sent over to work on this, but their paycheck still comes from industry. Six million coming out of the defense budget for this. No new money for anyone on it. Even though we're spending $30 billion extra, the defense department, they're not getting any extra. The Canadian forces aren't getting any extra. These are all valid questions. They weren't asked in the House. They weren't put to the minister. And there's nobody else that's going to be running with this story 
eh, you know, the rest of the media, they don't care. They got a they got a veteran to chase down who says they eh, they want me to prove my legs didn't grow back. That's a load of baloney that I'll explain later on. But here we have a minister lying and the conservatives can't do their job. They need to smarten up. They have the budget. They have the staff. They spent a long time in government, and they've forgotten how to do opposition. It's time to remember again. Otherwise, between the NDP looking for a new leader after Tom Mulcair and the Conservatives looking for a new leader after Stephen Harper, Justin Trudeau is going to get a free pass. Because we know from all the stories on socks and yoga and tomorrow and quantum computing and tomorrow the stories about him going to a boxing ring in Brooklyn, you know you're not going to get real questions. There's not going to be tough questions from the media lapdogs in this country. Somebody's got to step up. It can't just be the people that sit in this chair day in, day out. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. A lot of election news last night. We covered some of it live on air. It um, was fascinating to watch, and there's been more... uh, more attention paid, I guess, to what's going on south of the border than what's happened here. But here in Canada, we had a province decide to throw off the yoke of socialism and embrace some sanity. So progressive conservative leader Brian Pallister, he got in last night. He got in in a big way, more than 50% of the vote And he says, you know what, he's going to work cooperatively with other levels of government, even whether it's boosting trade or dealing with legalizing marijuana. You know, I'll I'll deal with the situations as they arise. I'll work and I'll build a relationship of trust and cooperation with the federal government as I have in the past uh, done when I was federal with provincial and municipal, uh, because I think that Manitobans, uh, Canadians generally benefit from those discussions. Well, we'll see. We'll see what it's going to ha- happen. Uh, Pallister, meanwhile, got, as I said, he got more than 53% of the vote. Uh, remember that Justin Trudeau won the federal election with 39% of the vote? That was massive, and it was wonderful, and everything is awesome. It was like they couldn't stop playing the theme song from the Lego movie. The media is not doing the same thing. Both the Globe and Mail and McLean's have come out with pieces talking about how Pallister's Uh, was held back by his bad personality. Yeah, that's why he only got 53% of the vote. I'm not saying he's a wonderful guy. I don't know him that well. But the day after someone wins more than 50% of the vote in the election, you go in a completely opposite direction in the break. Jason Kenney was tweeting out a, a great graphic about this. I'll tweet it out as well. And you've got to see it. You won't believe what they're doing. Now, let's look at uh, the vote south of the border. Hillary Clinton says everything is awesome for her because she's closing in on the nomination. Tonight, a little less than a year later, the race for the Democratic nomination is in the home stretch and victory is in sight. 
All right. So the Democrats deciding that they're going to uh, nominate a quite possibly indicted lying former secretary of state. Isn't it grand? But let's all worry about Trump. We should worry about all of them. But Trump, more than 60 percent of the vote last time I checked, it was around there. And uh, he's he's trying to claim, though, that Ted Cruz is mathematically eliminated. And that's not exactly true, despite what Donald says. We're close to 70 percent and we're going to end at a very high level and get a lot more delegates than anybody projected, even their in their wildest imagination. All right. So he's saying Cruz is eliminated and he, he he's now not saying he's going to win the majority. He's saying we're going to get a lot more delegates. Well, that means even he thinks they're going to a contested convention, which is what Cruz is banking on, because he thinks once they get to the floor, delegates have their say after the first ballot, most of them, some after the second, some after the third, but most after the first. The longer it goes on, the more Ted Cruz thinks he will be able to win the nomination. And I believe Donald's highest total will be on that first ballot, and he will go steadily down because Donald cannot win Donald cannot win. Well, we'll see. It's going to be fascinating, and it will be civil war inside the Republican Party one way or another. If Bernie Sanders doesn't win, what happens to all those people that he's drawing in, though? Nobody's really talking about that. Now, they leave the Democrats alone. They're in a civil war as well. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, Warren Kinsella joining me on a couple of issues. Pot and what it takes to be a good opposition party. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. He is breaking through the haze of smoke that settled over Canada after uh, Jane Philpott's announcement in New York today on pot. And joining us now, Warren Kinsella is the prince of the dark arts of politics. Uh, Warren, did uh, did Jane Philpott go to New York for better weed to make the the pot announcement? What, what What do you make of that? It was it was an odd place to do it, but I mean, if they were looking to get maximum coverage, they certainly did, and they probably got a bit of U.S. coverage too, which would be be tough to do the day after the New York primary. But she, um, I think, she was a better person to do it, frankly, Brian, than uh, Bill Blair. Um, you know, medical doctor. She knows something about public health. She's practiced in Africa, practiced in Canada, so she, she just sounded more authoritative and serious. I think than uh, anybody else that they could have put forward. All right, I'm going to play some audio of the potheads later on uh, and uh, and discuss what was going down on Parliament Hill. But I know in the past, I, I think I'm more agno- agnostic on pot being legalized than you are. M- my basic view is uh, the way it's been now, it's a bit of a t- detente with the mob. They get their cash cow of marijuana and they don't push harder stuff. I think, um, you know, the idea that you take pot away from organized crime and they're all going to go into the olive oil business like the Corleone family is a fallacy. They're going to push fentanyl. They're going to push other hard drugs. But you've always raised the issue with me. As a liberal, you've said, I'm not sure about this because it could harm trade with the U.S. It could shut down the border. She made the announcement in New York City. Do you fear any blowback now? It's been a while since you and I talked about this. 
I think you put your finger on it. That would be part of the reason why she would be making the announcement there. I mean, what's happening in the U.S. primaries, the one thing that all of them share in common, whether it's Sanders, Trump, you know, uh, Clinton, they've all become protectionists because it's worked with delegates. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sanders was protectionist, so it's pulled Hillary over to that side of the ledger. Uh, Trump has always been protectionist. And it had the same effect on Cruz and Kasich. So, you know, you've got whoever's going to be president of the United States is going to be protectionist. You've got protectionism kind of running rampant. It's the all, level of always governors. in, con- in uh, Congress. That's right. And, it, it, you know, contrary to what I think a lot of my liberal and new Democrat friends think, the, the, the governors who tend to be – the states tend to be most protectionist are the ones that are governed by the Democratic Party. So there's no respite there. So my concern about the dope thing is that, you know, I don't want to have somebody who's 16 years old makes a mistake having a criminal record as much as the next guy. But, you know, when we're heading into an environment where the Americans are going to be looking for tricks to, um, you know, create a protectionist wall to hold hold up Canadian trade or stop Canadian trade and services and goods coming across the border uh, as it does, dope is a great way to do that. Weed is a great way to do that. You know, just stopping a truck at the border, stopping somebody at the border and saying, well, we've got to subject you to a greater search than would normally be the case because, you know, we have a concern that your laws are not in sync with ours on drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, that's transparent and silly and dumb and so on, but you could easily see it taking place. Well, I, I, I could easily see the trade growing. I mean, we already know that BC Bud is very popular down in the United States. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's to them. It's the uh, the flip coin of the smuggled guns coming up, and we want to do more inspections to stop the guns. They may want to do more to stop the pot, and and unless you're bordering Colorado, it, it really becomes an issue. I think, and it, and it already has. You know, in those states like Washington, where there's been some liberalization of marijuana laws, um, you know, there's been Canadians, particularly from British Columbia, who have been confused about the state of the law. And thinking, well, you know, it's not a problem for me. And it's led to some holdups at the borders and, and some, you know, people being detained. So, you know, are our American friends our friends? Absolutely. But are they looking to uh, advance the protectionist interests that we now see in their politics? Absolutely. So that that's my big concern is that this gets used as a trick or, or a pretext to make it harder for Canadian goods to get across the border. Yeah, well, that may be worse than what I've been saying lately is the worst thing about legalizing pot, which is um, it, the smell is everywhere and the stuff stinks. Yeah. Just, the other thing is, and my wife and I were talking about this, the, this whole thing is just making it less fun than it used to be, too. I mean, it was... It was <laughs> I wanted, there in the open. I wanted to ask them on the Hill today, you know, would you would you buy from the government store? Because that's what we're going to end up with, right? I mean, Kathleen Wynne's musing about putting it in the LCBO. Are you are you still going to buy for Timmy uh, from Timmy, your buddy, or are you going to go to the government store? And I had to leave because the, the smell was killing me. I, I, I wasn't feeling well by the end of it. It's thousands up on the Hill. We'll get into that later on. Let me ask you, I was opening up the show ranting about the conservatives. They completely dropped the ball. John McCallum actually lies to Parliament, which is a, a big deal. I mean, he's asked about the millions spent by DND to move soldiers out of barracks to renovate bases to house refugees that never came. 
and the money's still coming out of D&D's books, so the conservatives are asking legitimate questions about this. And McCallum says, there's no truth to what he says. The minister assured me. Meanwhile, last month, that very minister, Harjit Sejan, had tabled an order paper question saying 370 uh, uh, soldiers moved off out of Kingston, 10 out of Alcarce, 2.6 million spent on Borden, 2.8 at Valcarce. Like, they go through the list. He lied, and the conservatives can't even call him out on it. That, that to me, is a bad opposition party. They, you know, they, what they look like right now, they look like an opposition party that's getting started on a leadership race. And I've been there in opposition. And when these things get started, Brian, mm-hmm. it's just really bad for, you know, that army that you want to maintain in parliament. You know, the, you get elected when you're in opposition, as Kretzian used to say to all of us, our job is to oppose. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to do that thoughtfully and, and, and so on. But when a leadership race kicks off, everybody, there's just all kinds of weird politics going on and people are paying less attention than they're supposed to. And things slip by, like, you know, what you've just pointed out. Unfortunately, I think for the conservatives, there's going to be more of this kind of stuff. And for the new Democrats, because they're about to kick off a race as well. And, uh, you know, for Justin Trudeau, well, he's got to be smiling all the way to the bank. Uh, it, look, both opposition parties, I don't count the Greens of the bloc, they, they barely exist, and they don't have official party status. But the two opposition parties are having leadership races. You're right, Trudeau has to be laughing all the way to the bank uh, because I, I know you like liberals, Warren. I know, you, I know you are a dirty liberal, but they're making enough sophomore or, you know, juvenile mistakes at this early stage that if you and I were running a war room against them, we'd be having a field day. Yeah, you know, and yes, they do make mistakes. Governments make mistakes. You know, Trudeau's got, he's in New York tomorrow, and he's apparently doing a boxing training thing in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple of liberals send it to me saying, why is he doing this again? You know, it's he's already kind of done that. So, and, but you know, of course, you know, the news is going to be filled with pictures of it tomorrow. You know, governments make mistakes. And the job of opposition in our system of government, Her Majesty's loyal opposition, is to hold them to account, hold their feet to the fire, and that improves our democracy. That improves our system of government. And it's just regrettable right now. You've got on the one side a rookie government that will be making some mistakes, and on the other side, you've got two opposition parties who've got their eyes fixed on their navels because of this leadership race. It's a, it's a real drag. It's a real drag, and it's going to be bad for my side of the business, but good for liberals, I guess. Uh, Warren, thanks for your time. Thanks, my friend. Enjoy the beautiful night as the haze of pot smoke wafts away. (laughs) I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. More when we come back. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition. The Rebel Himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Every once in a while you come across somebody that believes in sanity. That's not my friends Colin and Matt causing trouble across the street outside of 90 George. Now... Um, but it is a doctor that I heard on the radio with uh, Evan Solomon earlier today, because as everyone rushes to embrace suicide injection sites, sorry, 
heroin injection sites. I'm confusing our controversial issues now. We could combine them, I suppose. Assisted suicide and heroin shooting galleries? I mean, heroin will eventually lead there. But as everyone rushes to embrace so-called safe injection sites or supervised injection sites, they've changed the language now that everyone's pointing out, um, yeah, heroin's not safe. Mm. There are voices of sanity, including those in the medical profession. Today, Evan Solomon, this is time for the replay. I try and bring you what I think is the best of what other shows had on today. Something that you've got to hear. The 750 Redux. And Evan Solomon had on Dr. Mark uh, Ujinwala. He's with Recovery Ottawa. He is a, a doctor that specializes in dealing with addictions. And I'm going to try and contact him. We'll see. Maybe I'll sit down with him for a long chat. I'll go out to where he treats people. We'll see. Because this guy's speaking common sense that you're not hearing from an awful lot of people. I keep saying aiding and abetting people in their addiction is not treatment. It is not helping them. We shouldn't be focusing our efforts, our time, our money on arguing over this. We should be advocating for more treatment. If you listen, you will hear how few treatment beds there are for addicts at the Royal Ottawa Hospital. It will be shocking to you. Absolutely shocking. You attended the event on Monday? No, I didn't, actually. So on Monday, one of the issues there, and we spoke to Councillor Jeff Leeper about it, is he learned that it's a comprehensive approach to health, that, you know, they, they already did deliver seven uh, 700 needles. Uh, if it was a safe injection site, they would actually try to get some of these addicts into recovery. Do you believe that uh, uh, a, a supervised injection site would be helpful to the city? No, I, as I spoke to you before, uh, for uh, a number of reasons, um, those types of programs aren't appropriate for Ottawa. What we need in Ottawa is more actual treatment for the disease of addiction, including inpatient treatment, concurrent care programs where you're dealing with psychiatric uh, patients and treatment. Our problem, Evan, in Ottawa is, you know, I, I feel a little bit like Christopher Columbus telling people, you know, the world is round and they're saying the world is flat. And every time you get into these discussions, people who aren't uh, knowledgeable, none of them, like I'm a physician, addiction physician I work with. We have now at our clinic over a thousand patients who use, who have used intravenous drugs. Um, so we know a lot about it, and the problem is when people make statements, they're not really uh, explaining it because the definitions aren't clear. The word treatment, for example, means everything to different things to everybody. The word addiction means different things to everybody. So really, you're talking apples and oranges often. For example, some people actually believe that a that an injection site is where you give away needles. They think it's a needle exchange program. We already have an excellent needle exchange program. They also think that in that place, people give them drugs to use, which isn't true. So you have to bring your illicit drugs into uh, yeah. a place, okay? And then once you do your illicit drugs, then you've got to go out and withdraw and get more illicit drugs. So you've got to be around that area, let's say, where they want to put it on Nelson Street, and then you're going to have to commit crime to get the money to get the illicit drugs and then go back there again. 
So what really is going to happen there is the only people that will use that are the maybe 50 people around the shelters and whatnot in front of Nelson Street. Because you can, I can tell you people in Orleans, uh, in, uh, in Hunt Club and all other areas, they're not going to get on a bus in February morning. Well, we know that. Well, we know that. And, and the truth is the, the statistics say that people won't, unless it's within a 15-minute walk, they won't go. But one of the, how do you respond to what some see as the flaw in your argument, which is it's not that recovery programs don't work. You work there, you know they do, and we need to support them. But you need to do both because it's hard to get anybody, whether addicted to drugs, alcohol, tobacco. It is hard to get someone into a recovery program. And some believe this kind of supervised injection site will help steer people towards a recovery program. Well, first off, that's not the case. We don't. The point being is that we're using the word treatment. And so when I tell you, you know, the treatment in other diseases, you want the gold standard treatment. So when you have a heart attack, you want to be at the Heart Institute. You know, when you have cancer, you want to be at the cancer clinic. When you're going blind, you want to go to the Eye Institute. And you don't question what treatment is because what you're saying is that treatment is the gold standard treatment for the illness, okay? So the people that go in there are very, very sick. Intravenous drug users are at the end stage of their illness. The problem, Evan, is that that's a highly treatable disease. Addiction, you don't need to die from addiction. So these people are in end-stage disease with no help. So rather than keep saying, well, this is going to bring them into treatment, the point is there is no treatment. Those people need to be inside the Royal Ottawa Hospital as an inpatient, okay, having medical detoxification followed by inside-oriented But how do you get them there? That's the key. Well, that's the point. So there's the biggest question, Evan. So really what we need is all the land, the medical... The, um, the uh, politicians that have the purse strings, you say, listen, how do we get effective, efficient, um, manageable treatment centers where people can actually access and actually use? So if you ask Dr. Keon in the 70s, how do you build uh, a heart institute? This didn't happen overnight. This is a huge project. And by blowing a smoke screen and saying, oh, well, treatment of the people, the 50 people that are on the streets, and we'll give them uh, a place to shoot and inject drugs. That's, that's uh, shameful. That's insulting the people that work in the addiction world and saying, okay, you know what, in 2016, we don't know how to treat addiction. Well, I'll tell you what, my friend, we go to the Betty Ford Center, and I'll walk you around there, and I'll show you what a good treatment center looks like. At Royal Auto is right. a good treatment center. You can walk around yeah. there. The problem is you cannot access it because there's only 19 beds, and there's a year waiting time. Well, I, so that's I get- the problem. All right, here's what we're going to do. Uh, i got to let you go today, but uh, we are going to continue on this discussion because what I want to do is I want to keep this debate alive because it's a very important debate in our city. What is the best approach? Dr. Mark Ujinwala from Recovery Ottawa has an incredibly articulate position on this. Great to have you back on the program. Okay, thanks a lot, Evan. Have a nice night. Yeah, you too. Okay, Evan Solomon speaking with uh, Dr. Mark Unjual earlier today's with Recovery Ottawa. Fascinating guy. I'm liking what he has to say, maybe because it agrees with me, but I'm just tired of the constant medical professionals saying we need to aid and abet addicts. Because if you put it in plain language, that's what we're talking about when we talk about these heroin shooting galleries. And another so-called information session happened at the Uh, Sandy Hill Community Center on Nelson Street today, as if there aren't enough problems with addiction in that area, as if it's not already 
too close to two schools for the number of addiction problems that they have, a school in Sandy Hill, a school in Lowertown. These are the things that aren't getting talked about. It's why I raise the issues. Coming up, we're going to be chatting with Ben Shapiro, my old pal, uh, Ben, who uh, came up to Ottawa a couple of times. He came up to speak at a Maple Leaf dinner a couple of years ago. I was happy to host him out at the Marriott on Kent Street, and I'm sure many of you were there. Uh, He'll be joining us just after the top of the hour, and then uh, about 30 minutes from now, Anthony Fury from the Toronto Sun talking about the study being done by the Canadian Senate on EMP attacks, electromagnetic pulse. What is it? Why should you care? Is it a threat? We'll get into that. As well, my thoughts on 420 and um, traffic, the traffic mess that's coming in Ottawa with all the different construction projects going on and why a vet claiming he's being told to uh, prove his legs didn't grow back is full of it. Let's get to real issues in dealing with vets, not trump up fake ones. By the way, on Twitter right now, One of my followers, Nopasa, is out of the U.S., but follows this show. He says, obviously, 420 is Frito-Lay's idea of a Hallmark holiday. Love it. Beyond the News with Bilo. Back after this. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We're close to 70%, and we're going to end at a very high level and get a lot more delegates than anybody projected, even their, in their wildest imagination. That was Donald Trump last night reacting to the... Well, he, he won New York. Does he have the nomination yet? Mm, I would say no. And do his words indicate that maybe he realizes he won't walk into the convention with all the delegates he needs to win. Let's bring in Ben Shapiro, uh, the one, the only Benny Schaap. He's editor-in-chief at DailyWire.com. He's a syndicated columnist, and he hosts a talk radio show in Los Angeles. Joins me now. Ben? Yep, how's it going? Yeah, well, you know, Trump's winning, and you know where I stand on that, so I'm not crazy. But he is at the point now where even he's sounding like he's admitting that they're going to a contested or a brokered convention. That's what we're used to here in Canada. You guys guys are freaking about it. You know, people are freaking about it for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, I'm not so sure that this goes to a, to a brokered convention. It may go to, it may go to an open convention, you know, in, in the sense that, that, you know, the first ballot is questionable whether he has enough pledge delegates, but I, I am beginning to think that he will get there because the establishment is, is basically getting tired and they're making noises about how they want to hand it to him. His dual strategy of whining and threatening seems to be working on the establishment because it always works on the establishment. <laughs> you know, Obama whines and threatens and they gave in to him too. So why wouldn't they give in to Trump? Trump says that the rules are rigged, that, that he's being screwed, even though he won about 500,000 votes in New York and walked away with 90 delegates. Ted Cruz won 1.2 million votes in Texas and walked away with 101 delegates. So you tell me what's rigged. The system is rigged in favor of big blue states that will never go Republican. But he says nonetheless that the system isn't fair, and people tend to resonate to that because he has the most votes and because he has the most delegates. And then he says if he's not given it, then he's just going to tear the party apart, and he's going to take his ball and go home, and he'll burn everything down. And the GOP establishment thinks, okay, well, that's no good for us. We want to – 
come out of the convention at least unified enough where we can raise some money. And then if Trump goes ahead and he loses, then we'll just blame the conservatives anyway, even though the conservatives are the ones who are trying to stand up and stop Trump. So I think the establishment in the end will will swivel to Trump. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm by nature a pessimist. Um, and so I, I tend to think worst case scenario. And even I have not been pessimistic enough for this election cycle. So, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you, you and uh, John Robson both like to tell me that, uh, well, conservatives are pessimistic by nature. I, I'm I'm not sure I, I follow that because I don't find myself to be pessimistic, but maybe I'm a misplaced liberal and don't know. it. I don't know. Uh, no, I'm, a, I'm a pessimistic. I, I'm, I'm, I call myself an optimistic pessimist in the sense that in the long run, <laughs> things will be OK because I believe that, that God has a plan. But in the short run, people screw pretty much everything up, which is a relatively conservative position, So, which is why we have to oh, okay. well, believe in pure democracy. So, yeah, yeah you, you and I can agree on that. People get in the way and screw things up. Absolutely. So uh, if Trump doesn't win the majority going into the convention, uh, let, let, I want to play Ted Cruz right now um, because he was out today saying if it goes to the floor, then Trump's finished. And I believe Donald's highest total will be on that first ballot, and he will go steadily down because Donald cannot win. Do you think Cruz is dreaming in Technicolor? Uh, no, I think that if it goes, if Trump doesn't make the first ballot, he's not taking the nomination. There's no world in which he he does he misses the mark on the first ballot, and more people join him on the second ballot. That doesn't happen. The question is whether he makes it on the first ballot, and so the the kind of numbers question is really more about how many delegates he needs to get to in order to get enough uncommitted delegates to, to swing to him. So you figure there are about 150 uncommitted delegates. 54 of those are, are from Pennsylvania. Many of those people say they're just going to vote for whomever Pennsylvania votes for. Trump is going to win Pennsylvania. So if you take 1237 and you subtract 54, then you're talking more like 1183 that, that Trump has to get to. And, and then you figure there are a number of other uncommitted delegates who probably say another 15 or 20 would be willing to swing to Trump if things get rough just because they don't want to see a bloody fight on the floor between Cruz and Trump. And and so you could see Trump finishing as low as 1170 and still winning the nomination. Right now, you know, he, he outperformed in New York. It's not a huge story, not certainly not as huge as the media are making it out to be. The media are all located in New York, so they're making it out to be a bigger story than it is. But he certainly outperforms. And, and you know, given the narrative of the prior couple of weeks, which is that Trump was, was getting killed by, by Cruz and the delegate count, Trump did something that was instinctively very smart, which was he started ripping on the rules themselves and claiming that the rules themselves were preventing him from winning rather than this kind of movement to stop him that was popular. He was, he was basically saying, all the people love me, all the insiders hate me. Uh, and uh, and then New York sort of justifies that because obviously he did really well in New York, although he was always going to do really well in New York. Yeah, well, Ted Cruz killed himself with one comment, but he was never going to win anyway. Uh, let me ask you about this. You called the Trump versus Clinton uh, if if that's the showdown, you call it the Kobayashi Maru election. Uh, for those of us that don't speak Trekkie, what the <laughs> heck are you talking about? Well, there's, there's a very famous problem in Star Trek. It's called the Kobayashi Maru problem. It's in Star Trek II, uh, The Wrath of Khan. And at the very beginning, uh, Kirk is is faced with the Kobayashi Maru problem, which is basically there's it's, it's a problem where there's no solution. And no matter which way you turn, it's a bad answer. Uh, and Kirk ends up going in and, and changing the system in order to prevent that scenario from occurring. But it turns out that there is no such there is no such solution in real life, and that that's that's Trump, and that's that's Hillary. I mean, Hillary Trump is alien versus predator, Kobayashi Maru problem, the Antichrist versus the spawn of Satan. You know, I choose C. 
<laughs> Neither one of these candidates appeals to me, and I don't feel the moral obligation to vote for a for a bloviating, lying con man who has no history of conservatism and whose only principle is the personal success of Donald Trump. All right. I, um, uh, you and I are going to get letters over this, such as letters come in these days. Beyond the news at CFRA.com if you want to uh, to send us a note as uh, Ben oh, Wax is me. eloquent. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting plenty. I'm, you know, just add it to the stack. I, I, I understand. Uh, the the latest real clear politics uh, rolling average it, it's down to Clinton only beating Trump by nine point three percentage points. I think that's because there was a poll where Trump went over forty and Clinton went down to forty eight, but it is consistently in the double digits or close to it that she beats him by, and this is consistent. Uh, does this change? Is there a scenario where? In your estimation, where Trump wins the the nomination, let's forget that neither one of us are are crazy about him. He gets the nomination. Clinton's going to get her party's nomination. They get to the general election, and a bunch of Reagan Democrats show up and independents show up for Trump. Do you see that happening? No. Uh, And, and, you know, I I heard this argument earlier on, and, and it's actually relatively compelling. But if you look at his negatives, Right now, Trump is in negative territory with non-college-educated white voters. He's at 52% negatives with those people. Those are his people, right? He loves the poorly educated. He, <laughs> we we him, may have played that clip a few times on this station. In order for him to win, he needs to win 63% of the white vote. Mitt Romney won 59% of the white vote. Right now, he's not even drawing 50% approval rating among white people. Okay, The, the idea that he's going to outdraw, that, that he's going to outdraw Mitt Romney among white folks. Uh, whom? Women? I mean, there are people who went to college. There are people who are married. I mean, you, you can't you can't base your entire premise on every person in America is sixty is sixty five white lives in a blue collar town that lost its jobs in outsourcing because of manufacturing. Like there, there just aren't enough people. The, the idea was that there's a certain number of people who Mitt Romney didn't draw out to the polls, so Trump was going to cater specifically to them. He forgets there are a lot of people who did show up for Mitt Romney, and it's possible that you can't hold all of these eggs in in your in your hands. That that. You know, if if you are if you're trying to to grab at this extra egg, that you're going to drop three of the ones they're already holding, and that's that's kind of what Trump's candidacy looks like. I mean, again, he has not led Hillary Clinton in a single poll since. Let's see, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the polling numbers right now. The last poll in which he led was a USA Today poll in February, and he led by two. There's another one, NBC News, in January. He led by three. Oh, sorry, it was a Fox News poll in January. He led by three. Beyond that, he has lost. I believe last count was 40 straight polls. So, he, he's got uh, eight, out of thirty-five. The thirty-five last polls, he's won three, one by five, one by three, one by two. She consistently wins by double digits. Um, and, and I'm no fan of Hillary Clinton going in. I don't like this. A friend, <clears throat> excuse me, a friend that went down to work on Trump's campaign. I said, "Why are you working to elect Hillary?" Yeah, I mean, and, and this is the routine that, that we're constantly getting. You know, you're, you're going to elect Hillary. If you just listen, you're going to elect Hillary if you vote Trump into into the nomination. This is this is your fault. I don't understand how you can simultaneously hold the position that Donald Trump needs to bring these Romney voters who stayed home out. That those people were wronged in the last election cycle, and they must 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 be be catered to. But those of us who don't like Trump can't be catered to. By the way, all Trump had to do to to, to not alienate everybody was not alienate everybody. Right? The problem is the, the problem is Trump. It's his responsibility not to alienate one half of the Republican base. And, and he hasn't done that because, again, it's not just that he's not conservative. It's that he's insulting. It's, it's that he's nasty. It's that he's, he's vulgar. He, he is all he, of the he, things that— he's turning, uh, more, he's turning more presidential. 
Okay, well, do, do, and, do you think that's going to work? I think that he has shown uh, – if by his being more presidential means he's talking less, then sure. He went seven and a half minutes last night as opposed to going for 40, and he didn't call Senator Cruz lion Ted, right? So if, if that's all it takes to be presidential, then, then sign me up. It's uh, pretty well, Obama's lowered the bar significantly, so that well, might that's, be that's, it. That's true. That's true. But, but uh, this is my problem with the, with the Trump campaign in general is Obama lowered the bar, therefore – we're now going to take the bar, and we're just going to plunge it straight into the depths of hell. And, and this, this does not seem to me a smart strategy. This is not to say that we have to be civil. I don't believe in civility. Anybody who's watched me you know, knows that, that I believe in truth over civility. My problem with Trump is that it's not truth over civility. It's just incivility over civility, and there is a difference. All right. One of the, the best things I've ever seen you do, and uh, we've been on TV together, we've been on radio, we've co-hosted shows together – is uh, your speech in Ottawa where you talked about how to defeat liberals in an argument. And I believe people can find your path for doing that online, can't they? Yes, they can, they can, uh, they can, they can check it out. It should be on YouTube, and I think it has a bunch of views at this point. All right. Uh, and you, you want to figure out how to beat liberals in an argument? Listen to Ben Shapiro, watch Ben Shapiro. Even if you don't agree with him on Trump, go watch him on that. Ben, great talking to you as always. Yeah, thanks a lot. Ben Shapiro, the uh, editor-in-chief at The Daily Wire, New York Times bestselling author, radio guy, all of that. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, we'll get into the potheads on Parliament Hill, what this means, what they were saying, the contact high I got, back in moments. On the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Go. The whole day is going to pop. That was the big announcement today, wasn't it? It was also the big... um, the big smoke-in on Parliament Hill, I, I guess it was kind of media savvy for the Trudeau government. I mean, they've already told us they were going to uh, legalize pot. Justin Trudeau made that announcement. I believe it was out in Kelowna, British Columbia. And he was scratching his arms and rubbing himself like he was an addict. I'm not saying he is. I don't think he is at all. He's admitted to what drug use he has. But he was all twitchy while he was doing it. It was weird to watch. Um, yeah, He's admitted, like many people... He's tried marijuana a few times, but he doesn't do it anymore, he says. Last time was many years ago. Fair enough. But the health minister, Dr. Jane Philpott, goes down to New York. New York. I think she went to go vote in the primaries. It was huge. She goes to the U.N. to make the announcement that Canada is going to legalize marijuana, the legislation coming in a year from now. Today I stand before you as Canada's Minister of Health to acknowledge that we must do better for our citizens. I am proud to stand up for a drug policy that is informed by solid scientific evidence and uses a lens of public health to maximize education and minimize harm. Well, we'll see about that. In the meantime, the opposition parties are saying there's lots of harm. Colin Carey, the conservative critic, he's out there saying... There's not only a delay going on, there's an awful lot of confusion. 
the government has said they're going to bring something forward, but what they have done basically is created chaos. There's nothing out there. We have police departments. They don't know what to do. Uh, Mr. Trudeau promised that uh, the reason he was bringing this forward was to keep it out of the hands of children. You know, we have the pediatric society, uh, the psychological societies, all saying this can be problematic and, and dangerous for kids. Well, Tom Mulcair got up and said uh, if he had actually just moved now and decriminalized that uh, an awful lot of people would not be facing pot possession charges. I don't think those really happen anymore, people, but that was Mulcair's argument. There are thousands and thousands of mostly young people who will have criminal records for the rest of their lives because Justin Trudeau did not respect his promise to legalize marijuana as soon as he uh, took office. Who's getting busted for pot possession? Unless you're also getting busted for trafficking in something else or possession of something else, then they add it on. You know, you get caught with a big bag of fentanyl and some heroin and a bit of coke and, yeah, a couple of joints. Guess what? Yeah, then pot possession's being added on. But generally speaking, that's not happening. Now, Trudeau's answer to Mulcair in the House of Commons earlier today was, we can't do decriminalization because that just makes it legal for the mob or organized crime, he didn't say the mob, it makes it legal for organized crime to sell to everyone and make their money, and that's not how they're going to do it. The the I wish that the pot smoke hadn't been bothering me so much because I would have loved to have asked these young people up smoking on the hill whether they would buy their dime bag of pot from the government store or if they'd keep going to Timmy down the street and buying it on the corner behind the store. It's a good step. We're proud. We're proud, but it's it's moving rather slowly. You know, it plays a major part in our medical, uh, in the medical field of Canada. I think it should be um, advocated for instead of uh, looked down on. And people should actually smoke a joint and actually try it to see what it does. I hope it's not more lip service. We've heard a lot of announcements, but their intention. If they follow through, that'd be great. And I hope it's a respectable legalization and not just another form of prohibition. Well, we'll see over the next little while. Um, But like I keep saying, anyone that thinks that this is going to stop organized crime from selling drugs is dreaming. They're absolutely dreaming. One of my favorite references, and I made it with Kinsella earlier, is about The Godfather and how Michael Corleone kept saying that they were going to go legit, and they never did. They, they allegedly owned an olive oil business. But really, you know, they were in the mob. That's not going to change with this. That's not going to change at all. They will just push harder drugs. Yes, things will change. Yes, they won't be selling pot. Or maybe they will at cheaper prices. But it's not going to get them out of the drug business. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, Anthony Fury joining me. On something he thinks more of us need to know about. Later on, my thoughts on a soldier, a vet, his legs, and the traffic chaos coming to Ottawa. News Talk 580 CFRA. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Give it to me, I'm worth it. Baby, I'm worth it. Oh, you know I'm worth it. Yeah, you do. 
You're bad. I'm being silly, but, well, that's me. Uh, B-Lil here with you. B-Lil. Brian Lilly here with you until 10 o'clock tonight. Anthony Fury joining me now from Toronto. And, Anthony, I want to talk to you about your uh, a series of columns about um, EMP attacks. And we'll get into what those are and, and why you think that we need to wake up to a threat that many people don't know exists. But I want to ask you quickly about Mike Duffy. The verdict comes down tomorrow morning. 10 o'clock here at the Ottawa Courthouse. Uh, if if you were betting on this in Vegas, where would you bet? Is he guilty of all, cleared of all, guilty of some, not of others? Yeah, I'd put money on guilty on some, not on others, and the lower threshold charges, because the whole arguments that that not just Duffy was making, but senators have been making in their in public remarks and speeches in the Senate is that the rules are somewhat loosey-goosey, and they have a point. If you know the rules, if you've actually looked at it, talked to people who've worked in the Senate, there are some loosey-goosey rules out there. So no way is he is he going to be found on quite a few of those charges. I think it's going to be in the pretty low number, and then it'll be curious to see what happens after that. I think that he's going to walk on absolutely everything. Relate, wow. Not everything. You have to let me finish my sentence. Everything related to his residency. I don't, uh, I don't think he is found guilty on anything related to residency. I think maybe the, the, the stuff that he, he filed through his friend, the consultant, but that would be about it. I, I, I think he's going to be found uh, not guilty of most charges. I would not bet against you on on those particular conditions, for sure. All right. Let's get into EMPs. We'll get to Duffy tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock, Ottawa Courthouse. I'm sure there'll, there'll be lots of live coverage here at uh, News Talk 580 CFRA. Uh, but EMPs, a lot of people have no clue what these are. I wish that when I came on this program, we had the rap music on as the intro. We chatted about what our favorite beers are or, or the great movie we've just seen. Hey, hey look, Sadly, I, I introduced you with Fifth Harmony, <laughs> man. Baby, baby, I'm worth it. Or I would have taken my beloved 80s music. The problem is, <laughs> the problem is I got to come on the show right now and tell everyone why North America could very well be over life as we know it imminently. And I'm not making this up. Okay. Uh, I, I have a tinfoil hat on now, and you know that I used to keep one in my office. So. I, I, this is true. But no, but here's the important thing. I never did keep a tinfoil hat in my office. I'm not that guy. I've never been that guy. But this is the real deal. Electromagnetic pulse attacks. They can happen naturally through solar flares, as they do about once every 100 or 50 years, we figured out. Or they can be attacks that are that are done by other countries north korea russia iran china they all have the ability to make these attacks as do some terror groups okay what so what, are, what does an electromagnetic magnetic pulse attack do and why do we care high energy radio waves that fry electronics so if a guy does it just outside your house he fries your tv your car and so forth now that sucks it's really annoying and you're gonna have to get a new a new car and a new tv i could do that but, to my neighbor yeah, you could. Actually, you could do it with material just found at Best Buy or at Canadian Tire. There's been tests into this. 
the problem is if you start blasting it really high in the sky, 50 kilometers, 100, 200, 300 kilometers in the sky, launching it from a satellite, and North Korea has satellites in orbit, or at least they're trying to, you can actually wipe out the whole electricity grid of North America. Now, I, I remember what the 2003 blackout was like. Is that what you're talking about, that sort of scenario? But instead of it happening by accident, it happens due to someone's maniacal plan? Well, exactly. Earth or a natural occurring solar flare, what happened in that year was the grid was taken out on the eastern seaboard, rolling blackouts, and then it shut down. Now, usually when plants shut down, they can come back online in a matter of hours, minutes, days, or weeks, as has happened in 2003, and you just have to live without power for a few days. What would happen here is this would fry our electronic transformers and our power generating stations. Now, some of those countries I named, like Russia and China, they actually protected their grid against this. They have these sort of massive surge protectors on their grid. We don't have them in America, and we don't have them in Canada. Although now the information is declassified. It was declassified in 2008 in the U.S. Some states are actually working to protect their grids. Canada, though, it's still classified. Few politicians are talking about it, except yesterday the conversation began on Parliament Hill. Okay, with what? This is the Senate committee? Yes, yeah, Senate National Defense and Security Committee, Senator Daniel Lang, conservative from the Yukon, he's chairing that committee, and he has put a formal request through to the liberal government saying, when are you going to declassify the information on EMP? Because, Brian, I've been trying to figure out how much does the RCMP and CSIS and Emergency Preparedness Canada actually know about this, care about this, what are they doing about it? And I've only found a couple snippets, like a report from 1971 or something like that, acknowledging it's an issue and a problem. Uh, but oh, okay, I, I know about EMPs, uh, but are you saying that this is a is something that could happen, uh, or that they've been talking about it since 1971? Yeah, yeah, they've been talking about it. When when scientists started talking about it, uh, the CIA started investigating it in the early 60s. There was a nuclear blast in, in Hawaii called Starfish Prime, and not only did, does the crater do an explosion when there's a nuclear blast, but they realized electronics like radios were fried. And they're like, what the hell is this about? And then they started investigating and they realized that the problem from a nuclear attack isn't just the crater or, of course, the you know radioactive stuff in the air, but the fact that you can fry the electronics. And they realized we might actually have a bigger problem in our hands. And some people uh, high up in the CIA and other intelligence agencies actually say a big EMP blast from somewhere like North Korea or Iran, is actually way more dangerous to the West than a traditional nuke. I, I remember years ago reading the novel One Second After by William Fortune, uh, or Forsten, let me, so that people don't think I'm the you know, Fortune magazine type thing. No, William Forsten, I believe it was Chris Sims got me onto that, and it talks about what it would be like. Uh, this guy in a small North Carolina town, and an EMP attacks and what what it looks like, and I mean it does does make the uh, make it sound like the blackout of two thousand three where we couldn't use bank machines, we couldn't use the cash register at the store. If a store had enough power to be open, their cash registers wouldn't necessarily work properly. Uh, the gas pumps wouldn't work. I, I had to leave for a wedding in Burlington, Ontario, when the uh, 
the 2003 blackout happened, I was only able to do that because I found a gas station in Canada that was open and was able to double back to the 416 and get out of here. But it, stores that were open couldn't take payments half the time. But those are what we call inconveniences. In the case of a well, big except, attack... Except that the system doesn't work with that small inconvenience, and you're talking about something much bigger. Well, no, exactly. And the things that you're saying obviously really suck, and that's what happens when we have blackouts that last for longer than a few hours. On these EMP blasts, they can permanently fry some of our electronics. So, so we have to completely that, rebuild from scratch. It's not just rebooting the system. Absolutely. That, and why... What a lot of people want to bring to North America, to, to the U.S. and to Canada through legislation and regulation with electricity acts is getting nuclear generating stations, power stations, the grid to get them to all have these surge protectors so that you can actually reboot it rather than just seeing the system be fried and you have to build them all from scratch which is going to take a long time because while we're building them all from scratch, remember, we don't have power, which means our regional food distribution hubs don't have power, which means the food that we rely on to live, uh uh-oh, that's going away. The just-in-time economy. It means your uncle's dialysis machine is not going to work anymore. All of these crazy things that essentially turn us into the Walking Dead show minus the zombies part. Okay, that... That doesn't sound very nice at all. Uh, Minus the zombies is key, though. That's, yeah. that's, the good, that's the one good news I have to bring this evening. Now, you say that other, other places have this. We should be bringing it here. My only caveat, Anthony, and, and as an Ontario resident, I hope you can understand this, I'm not sure that the time to do this is while we still have a liberal government in charge of the uh, power system because they find ways to jack up the prices when power consumption goes down, when it goes up, no matter what. We will be in energy poverty if we try this under the, uh, under them. I have it, it, no. It's a good point, but I have good news for you in that it seems like the total cost to do this for all of Canada would really only be about three hundred and fifty million dollars. When you keep in mind the gas plant's cancellation, in which you got diddly squat, was a billion dollars, three hundred and fifty million, and that's all the provinces combined. And the regulators and the electricity companies will shelve some of those costs. Yeah, not that much money. And you can do it over time. What what the governments, what the different states are doing is that they're not suddenly shutting things down and replacing the parts. But when parts need to be replaced, they're making sure they repla- replace them with EMP-compliant parts. Okay. Well, fascinating stuff. Uh, I know that uh, I've already got one email from a smart aleck that I know uh, saying that uh, we got the tinfoil hats on too tight. But I think this is a real issue. I think it's something that we should consider, especially with a resurgent in bellicose Russia, uh, a China that is, we don't know what they're going to do, and North Korea, uh, rogue state. I mean, what else can you say? Not tinfoil hat. I've been reading a lot of reports. This is legislation that is coming to Canada. Politicians are pushing for it. Look it up, folks. All right. Thanks for the uh, time, Anthony. You can find Anthony Fury's columns at the Ottawa Citizen, or sorry, the com. You're all one company. Sorry for confusing you there. That's okay. Not in the citizen. Still, uh, we're, we're, we're brothers is what we are. All right. But you can find him at theottawasun.com. Anthony Fury, thanks so much. Take care. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. I'll learn to hit the right button next time. Back in moments with more below. is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at facebook.com slash 580 CFRA.
Patrice O'Hamilton tweets in relation to my discussion earlier about the uh, the big pot protest. Uh, yet no media word for twenty five thousand for March for Life on the Hill May twelfth by selective agenda driven. RCMP say about five thousand out there. It was a sizable crowd. Was it as big as the March for Life? No. But Patrice O'Hamilton's right. When it comes to the March for Life, there will not be the amount of media coverage, and it will not be as positive. In fact, it will mostly be negative, except here, because I'll just go out and talk to people and bring you their stories. But an awful lot of the coverage that will happen on May 12th, that's the next National March for Life, it's going to be negative. It'll be these bad people, those bad politicians, those retrograde this and that. Frustrating. I, I I remember one uh, news organization I worked for in this city, and it wasn't this place. Uh, they once described it only in terms of a traffic stop. Meanwhile, you can have 12, 12 uh, protesters out, and they'll get more coverage, as long as they're yelling at something about conservatives. Hmm. want to talk about a guy named Paul Franklin. This is a veteran who continues to say that he is being told he has to prove that his legs have not grown back in order to get the care that he needs. And if he's not saying it, this is at least the story that keeps coming out. Paul Franklin is an Afghan vet. He is a retired master corporal. He lost both his legs. And he keeps saying that I have to prove that my legs have not grown back. He lost both his legs above the knee when a bomb hit the vehicle he was driving during a Canadian Forces tour in Afghanistan in January of 2006. The story, according to the Ottawa Citizen, and it's the same elsewhere, is that They say 10 years later, he's getting ready to fill out yet another set of forms to tell the Canadian government that, in fact, his legs are still missing. It's insane, Franklin said. My problem with all of this is if you have someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder or some sort of brain injury, or you have a combination of the two, and they're on street drugs or alcohol or whatever, the chance of them filling out the forms correctly is minimal at best. He had this fight last year. And he actually won with the government of the day, which would be the mean, even, evil Stephen Harper government that doesn't care about veterans. And I'll play you the clip of the former Veterans Affairs Minister at a time. But I'm going to do what most people won't, and that's call BS on Paul Franklin. Because he does not have to fill out a form that says, my legs have not grown back. Like all veterans, he's asked to fill out forms to receive benefits receive care that ask simple questions such as has your condition improved is it the same has it worsened has it worsened do you need more care what would we be saying if the government just said all right um so you get this injury yep here's your level of care check back with us in 30 years We don't care about you. We don't want to check in. Instead, they've got a check-in system. Hey, tell us how you're doing. Do you need less care? Do you need more care? Do you need the same level of care? 
And Paul Franklin turns around and tells the media that he has to keep proving that the government his legs haven't grown back. And the media just turn around and repeat it like a bunch of fools. Show us the form. Show us the form where it says, I, Paul Franklin, haven't had my legs grown back. They won't show you because it doesn't exist. Uh, Aaron O'Toole came out. He was asked to speak on this issue for the conservatives. He's the former Veterans Affairs Minister. He replaced Julian Fantino, 22-year veteran of the Canadian Forces, was in the Air Force. He could have used this as an opportunity to slam Kent Hare, the current Liberal Veterans Minister, but didn't. Instead, he took the time, and I stood there in this scrum, as he explained what the situation is really all about. He's far more political far more politically correct than I am, and I'm sure he has more time for for this story than I do. But he explained what is really going on here. Well, first, uh, Paul Franklin's a great Canadian. Consider him a a good friend. And he raised this issue last year when I was Veterans Minister. And he and I know this issue well, but a lot of Canadians don't. Uh, As Paul knows, we fixed one of the forms that was driving him, um, you know, making him upset each year because it looked like it was a burden every year to reprove an injury. So Veterans Affairs took the form, which was for the Independence Home Care Benefit, and we did change it. We changed it to uh, make it better language, more clear, and instead of annually, we went to every three years. And it's really focused on, is more support needed in the home? The other form, so the form that's come up this year, is, is actually not the government's form. It's a Manulife uh, insurance form from the insurance program from the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, Last year when I was minister, I urged Manulife to also do an update to their forms to promote wellness. Seems like they haven't done that. I'd ask the the minister to continue pushing on that um, because Paul's frustrations are are understandable. Um, I know the insurance form is a requirement that is still there annually, I understand, but we did fix the Veterans Affairs form. I thank Paul Franklin for his service, and I feel for him and anyone that has lost limbs, been injured. But I know too many people in the military, and I know the military is not perfect, and I know Veterans Affairs is not perfect. But I know too many people who have gone through things to know that the, the way Franklin and the media make it seem is that the system is completely uncaring, and as uncaring as bureaucrats can be, a bureaucratic system can be, let me rephrase that, Asking someone, has your condition improved, stayed the same, or gotten worse, is not saying prove that your legs haven't grown back. Can we just have a little honesty in the discussion? You heard Aaron O'Toole there say, yeah, the language could be improved, and they improved the government form. What hasn't been improved, he said, is the Manulife form, and they're calling on Manulife to try and do that. The conservatives tried it. We'll see if the liberals keep pushing on it. Nobody wants to screw over veterans. Quit making it sound like they do, and let's work together on this issue. I'm Brian Lilly. When we come back, your calls, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. You want to take me to task over how I discuss a veterans issue? Have at her. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. In a world gone mad... There must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. 
So where do you come down on the issues of the day? I want to hear from you. 521-TALK, 521-8255, or star 580 on Bell Mobility. If you want to email me, it's beyondthenews at CFRA.com. Drop me a line on what you're thinking. Chris wrote in earlier about the whole issue of pot legalization. He said, I don't want to be high. Have, have you ever got off an elevator in an apartment building and the whole floor smelled of pot? Sexy, eh? After legalization, I guess this will become normal. Seriously, can you get high off secondhand pot smoke? Um, Yes, you can. If there's enough of it and you're inhaling it, I did not feel well leaving the hill today. I really didn't. Thousands of people smoking up. And I was there trying to get a story and had to leave. So... Uh, he says, uh, if so, uh, what happens if I don't want to get high? I guess it won't have a choice. Uh, Chris wrote in about, uh, sorry, Michael wrote in about Bill 223, S-223. This is a bill that's being raised by Senator Crazy Pants. That's that's how you say her name. I know it's spelled uh, Celine Hervieux Payette, but I believe it's pronounced Senator Crazy Pants. And when you look at her legislative record, you see why I call her that. Uh, and it is to change all kinds of regulations around guns and essentially make it so that you can only hunt. According to Todd Brown, writing at The Rebel, and Todd is a member of a, a legitimate gun group in Alberta that is, is trying to uh, educate people on firearms issues. Uh, he says that uh, you may only be able to hunt in Canada with uh, shotguns, Smoothbore black powder rifles and 22 rimfire rifles, but a 308 or a 306, those would be outlawed. In his view, his reading of Bill S223. 521 Talk, 521 Want to throw out a very local issue right now, local in terms of traffic. The city was talking about how uh, they had a, a whole meeting today on the issue, and Catherine Lanthrum of CTV Ottawa was down there looking at the plans for construction. I thought construction was already bad enough. I don't know if you come downtown often. I have to, both to come to the station down here in the Byward Market, but also go to the bunker so that I can cover Parliament Hill. And whether you're driving, walking, or taking the bus, you are facing construction. I was trying to get to a place to, to go by lunch today, and... I had to change sidewalks several times because the sidewalks are all ripped up as well. Never mind the roads. The roads are sometimes down to one lane due to the construction. And you're trying to walk from building to building, and you get to the the corner, and it says you can't walk down this side. you got to walk to the other. If you're driving, it's probably even worse. The other day, trying to get to a Trudeau event, I eventually just had to park and, and run in. So listen to this. This is Catherine Lantham and... Uh, City Councilor Keith Egli talking about what's coming, part of her report on CTV News at 6. This year, the public should be prepared to feel the crunch. Ramping up to finish off projects for the LRT Confederation Line launch in 2018. And maybe even more importantly, finish main route core construction projects before next year for Canada's 150th birthday celebration. We're basically using this as an opportunity to, for Ottawa to shine, to show the rest of the country and, and the people who live here what a great city it is. 
but getting there won't be easy. Just look at this map of summer construction projects inside the core, and that means delays for you. The biggest headache? Here, starting on Sunday, LRT Construction will close the campus transit station from Laurier Avenue to Lee's Station and the pedestrian tunnel. If you want to continue to be a creature of habit and stick in your car as you put it, then it's going to take you longer. And it will take you longer, but... But, I don't know, the arrogance of some of these city officials, it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. Absolutely everything is being ripped up at once. And all the counselor can say is, well, if you're a creature of habit, you're ripping up a main uh, off-ramp heading into the downtown core. Pick any of them, and it's going to wreak havoc. And it doesn't matter if you take the bus. The bus route's being ripped up. They're sending buses up King Edward. The express buses, like the 95 and the 98. It's madness. Absolute madness. Do you have thoughts on any of this? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility, or beyond the news at CFRA.com. George in the prior calling in about electromagnetic pulse. I thought I'd get your attention with this, yeah. George. No, but there's an interesting uh, side, side, side step to this. You'll see what I mean in a second. Okay, after one year, how many people in the United States are supposed to be alive after the pulse hits? That I do not know. Well, they predict about 10% left mm-hmm. because of riots and war, okay? Now, if you uh, go to uh, where people predict the U.S. population, right? So that means that sometime after 2020 or 2017, the population would only be 10% left, so they have to put in a figure of what, whatever 10% of the population is, right? I don't know. You're losing me already. So they have to put 10%. If you were making a prediction of the U.S. population in the future, right? Mm-hmm. You assume there's going to be an electromagnetic pulse coming, you would have to put out a figure for the, for the predicted population, right? Okay. Okay, now, did you notice that the electromagnetic pulse thing is similar to an economic collapse? Well, Actually, because it, it would cause an economic collapse. Yeah, but if, if we had an economic collapse coming, that means that, that, that you were predicting the population of the United States, regardless of EMF, the population of the United States has to drop because if there's an economic collapse coming, then they're going to be less, less Americans. There's going to be less Americans, less Canadians, less everyone. Yeah, if there's an economic collapse, regardless of an EMP. And that means that our politicians are just as dangerous as an EMP effect. If uh, they cause an economic collapse. Okay. In other words, they're killing us. Killing us or people not having as many children. The, uh, no, the, the, the fact is that uh, population rates are going down, not up. No, but they're, dri- they're going to drive it down if they have an economic collapse. Okay, well, you know, email me some stuff on this, George. And I will look, look into Rome, it. Rome had 1.2 uh, million people at, at, at its height. But after they collapsed it all, there's only about uh, 15,000 people left. Send, uh, after two centuries after it collapsed. Send me some stuff on this. I'll look it up, George. Oh, I, Beyond I, the news at CFRA.com. Bye. Bye. Uh, Okay, let, let's go to a quick break, then we'll come back to uh, to Kevin in Cornwall waiting to talk about Paul Franklin's letter. Do you have thoughts on that? Do you have thoughts on the conservatives doing a piss-poor job of holding the liberals to account as John McCallum outright lies, outright lies, in the House of Commons? 521-TALK, 521-8255. B-Lil, back in moments.
some days, the resistance verges on rebellion. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. I'm drinking out of the, one of those giant water bottles that means you will never be thirsty. The one and a half liter ones. Got to hold it with two hands. Take a swig before you go on the air. Bill reacts to my story about Immigration Minister John McCallum telling a bald-faced lie about the Syrian refugees and defense spending in the House of Commons and how the conservatives just let it go. Bill writes, the liberals lie in the House of Commons? When did that start happening? Hmm. Right around the time the House of Commons started, I suppose. And uh, and on the Twitter machine, Tim told me to look up the Carrington-class solar flare and said that makes EMPs seem like small damage. Uh, This is a solar flare that happened in 1859, and scientists... um, speculate that if if it were to happen today, it would cause huge problems for modern-day society. And it's just sunspots flaring up. Kevin in Cornwall is calling in about Paul Franklin's letter. Paul Franklin, of course, being the veteran that says he's being told to prove his legs have not grown back. Kevin, you're on Beyond the News. Good evening, Brian. I just want to say very, very simply that... Uh, I'm not 100. Well, I understand where your point is, and I certainly understand that you've been following this for many, for for not only the first year, but since 2006 on on uh, on Paul's story, and also other veteran stories as well. Okay, from the Afghanistan okay. and post Afghanistan. The problem that I have with this is, I'm, and I'm sure you you'll understand, is that the I think the whole question is with the menu light form is what they were talking about, and I got a good kudos to Paul for actually making amendments, not only for himself, but also for his other, other veterans that, that uh, post-Afghanistan um, that were having trouble with that form. And the government actually realized that there was some mistakes that were done there and causing some, some stressful issues for most of, the, uh, most of the veterans and basically had it corrected. And I think what Paul is doing uh, is basically, I think he's living frustration with the way that these forms are being done, and I'm sure that you'll understand as well, Brian, is that the government did change the insurance policy for these veterans from Manulife to previously, and please help me which company that was, because I know it, it, there's an abbreviated version of that, but unfortunately I just don't, I don't, I, I, I can't recall it. Right I off couldn't, the top tell of my you, head. couldn't tell you which company had it before Manulife. Or, but I mean, my understanding is it was Manulife a year ago when Aaron O'Toole asked them to change it, and it's still Manulife today. And uh, they're asking for changes. Well, he is, uh, and and he 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 said that he believes he he had Aaron O'Toole, kudos to him. He had chances to take shots at uh, the Liberal Veterans Affairs Minister Kent Hare, and didn't. Yep. And said, "I believe that you know he he's working on this and and trying to find a fix." But Kevin, do you think that the the these forms force Paul Franklin to show that his legs have not grown back? I personally, if you want my personal opinion, no offense to anybody, I think it's just extra paperwork for absolutely no reason. Let's be honest. No, they, no, they, no that, that, that's not it at all. In, in a year, if if you have, and I know this from personal experience, from uh, having a family member dealing with uh, back issues, yes. they're being shoved out of the military after a long career, 
of yeah. being a grunt because, hey, carrying a rucksack and a heavy rifle is going to mess up your back while they're going through back surgery. So, uh, okay, is the back surgery making it better? Are things better? Are they the same? Are they worse? How is that saying, show me your leg screw back? Okay. Brian, I understand your point. I'm not debating what you're saying. I am debating, and what I'm understanding from Paul as well, is that you have some of the veterans who are suffering right now. To okay. be able to, 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 okay, they are suffering. Whether we want it, it's, it's, it goes way beyond so do they need, in my opinion. Do they need more help? There has to be a way uh, yes. to assess yes. whether my, they if, need more help, less help, the same level. What do they need? And at some point, you have to ask them questions. Yes, well, I agree with you, Brian, on that. But to what point do we aggravate the person's condition? And I think Paul has a very valid point there. Well, I think he undermines his case. Not that most of the media are going to ask these questions, but I think he undermines his case by simply saying, there, and, and the media repeating ad nauseum, that he has been told to prove his legs haven't grown back. Well, I, I think we have, I, I think in general the media have a responsibility, and I'm not casting the stone at anybody in particular, any of the media sources, Brian, I'm just going to say it as it is. I think that the I really do think that the medias do have a responsibility to look at the core, the core, core, core issue with the veterans, not beyond paperwork, not behind the fluff, but the true legitimate story in behind what these veterans are suffering from. And I think what happens is the distortion that happens and sometimes in the mainstream media is not necessarily getting to the real true story of what's happening. And with the, with the real true evidence and the real true facts are that the veterans are uh, in need of discussing. That's where uh, my problem with this whole situation is. It well, goes way beyond d- forms. D- d- distorting uh, what is asked of someone to figure out if they need more care, less care, the same care. Uh, it, you know, it used to be that Veterans Affairs was the most nonpartisan file you could have. I and agree. I, I remember, and I, I've told this story many times on air in various places, that when Liberal Veterans Affairs Minister Albina Guarnieri introduced the new Veterans Charter in 2005, she had yes. support from every party leader, from every party There was a standing ovation because all the parties thought they were doing the right thing. They worked with veterans groups to bring this in, to bring in the changes. And then the conservatives got in, and a couple of years in, veterans' issues became highly highly partisan. They became a a stick to beat the conservatives with, even though I don't believe that things had changed. I don't believe that Greg Thompson was a bad veterans' affairs minister. I think Julian Fantino was quite often a jerk— and I've said that before, and I'll say it again, but that doesn't mean he's a bad minister. I mean, he was set up by CUPE and PSAC and these other unions with cameras showing up. But the fact is, nobody wants to screw over veterans. Nobody's trying to screw over veterans. And this constant harping that that's what's going on is what drives me nuts. If there's a problem, bring it up. Let's try and fix it in a reasonable way. And don't claim that you've been told to prove that your legs have grown, uh, haven't grown back. Now, I, br- listen, Brian, I totally, totally agree with you on that. The only thing that I am trying to bring up to the point 
okay, for the vet, for, and I'm, and I'm not, a, I am not a veteran. I did serve in the Canadian forces. However, I am not a veteran. So I can't, I can't, dis, I, I can't state that. I can tell you that I do have very close friends, including one in particular that lost his life in Afghanistan. I won't mention any names for the sake of the, of the family. However, I can tell you that I know for a fact that this particular Silver Cross family advocated at the time that you were just talking about for those changes to be done and to represent all the Silver Cross families as well to make those changes happen for their for, for their, their fallen loved ones. So right. I know for, I know exactly where you're coming from, Brian. The only thing that I am trying to say is if there is a way that we can fix this with limiting the number the number of the stress that these veterans are already living post war, let's uh, do it. Let's and, find and, a solution. And I think there's a, an attempt to do that already. Kevin gotta run. Thanks for the call. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, News Talk five eighty CFRA. To you, he's rebellious. To official Ottawa, he's disdainfully insubordinate. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. 521-TALK, 521-8255. If you want to join the entourage, if you want to have your say on what's happening in the stories of the day, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility, or if you're calling from out of town, 1-800-580-2372. Peter in Ottawa. Peter, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, Brian. Um, the article in the, uh, Today's Citizen uh, by David Reevely criticizing Mayor Watson's uh, decisions or, or lack of decisions on, on key points, I thought Reevely was a bit over the top with some of his criticisms. However, I do, I do think that Mayor Watson was right in a couple of, uh, in a couple of files. The surge uh, pricing for driving cars into the city, I think, is a crazy idea, and they would turn off a lot of people from wanting to, 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 to visit Ottawa from other parts of the country or possibly from the USA. I think it's a silly idea. The thing that was also caught my eye in the paper was that he published all of the uh, the money that was earned or the money that was unspent, the budget money that was went unspent by councillor. But that was pretty revealing. He has a pretty pretty good view on who's you know who's uh, you know spending what. And uh, it's interesting. It was a good article. I I didn't read it. I'm just checking it out right now. Um... He's talking about safe injection sites at the beginning and photo radar. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to shock Jim Watson. Jim, it's Brian. It's Brian calling. <laughs> uh, I, I'm with, I'm with the mayor. I'm with Jim Watson on safe injection sites and opposing that. Yeah. I'm with him in opposing photo radar. I'm with yeah. him on opposing ranked ballots, and I'm willing to listen to him on the issue of corporate campaign donations at the municipal level because it's vastly different than what happens at the at the province. He's right on that. I'm willing to have a discussion on that. Yeah, uh, but totally um, totally I, I haven't read the that. rest of, of what Reevely had to say. The idea of a, a surge price to drive downtown? No way. Yeah, Get I, lost. I it, I, yeah, I think it's silly, and that's why I thought it was kind of instructive when the citizen published the all the city all the city councilors uh, the amount of budget that they actually used up and the portion that they returned that's kind of instructive but um, you know it just seems that you know looking for like photo radar or 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 surge pricing uh, fees of, of any sort 
Um, the, the issue the issue is overspending, of course, right? And I, I believe. Uh, these... Correct me if I'm wrong, Peter. I I only moved to Ottawa in '98, so only a lifetime ago for some people out there. Uh, but I moved to Ottawa in '98. From what I understand, in the early '90s, OC Transpo toyed with surge pricing. They had peak hour pricing for riding the bus. And if you wanted to ride during rush hour, you paid more. And the idea was to try to get students and seniors to ride at 9.15 instead of 8.15. Exactly. Yeah. Did did, did they they do that? that. They did do that. There were were peak peak hour fares for certain express routes. But you know what? Uh, I think what bothers people, it's kind of like the weather, the unpredictability of the weather. It's not that it's cold or, or it's warm. It's the fact that one day is totally unpredictable from the next day. Uh, when we head into spring or we change season, if, it seems the same thing in, with government is that there's no sort of long-term vision, no long-term plan. It's just a bunch of councillors sitting around. And let's let's be honest, these councillors, when they come up with these different ideas, they're jockeying for to, to step up into a higher position or, or, or step into a committee. I mean, they're doing, they're coming up with these ideas. I, I see Diane Deans is coming up. She's going to revitalize uh you know, she went down to states and she saw a neighborhood that was revitalized, you know. And, well, I'm sure that's going to cost money, too. So it just seems like a higgly-piggly, willy-nilly sort of visionless city. And I think that's what pissed off David Reedley was that, you know, the mayor is sort of, you know, he's happy to lead the pack. I mean, it all makes Jim look good when the people below him are squabbling and running around with their heads cut off and coming up with silly ideas. All Jim has to do is sit back and say, you know, well, you know. I, <laughs> I don't back that. You know what? And um, again, I've harassed Jim over the years on many things. We worked together in this building a long time ago, uh, and I've harassed him since. But it would be, you know, coming on side of safe injection sites, photo radar, and rank ballots. Those are all very progressive things. And he used to belong to the Liberal Party of Ontario, a very yeah. progressive party at the moment. And they all support these things. They think these things are wonderful. So for yeah. his base, he, you know, he should be saying, yes, I embrace all of these things. And he's not. So, I mean, the easy position, I think, would be for him to say, yeah, let's get on board. And and a lot of the chattering classes, folks, I'm not talking regular people, but I'm talking, you know, the Andrew Cohens of the world would talk about how visionary he was. Yeah, well, you know, I, I do think that Mayor Watson, he, uh, he's a very shrewd operator. He knows this stuff. Oh, ab- absolutely. A, I mean, he's a, he's a total pro. And, and I, go, I go back to my thesis that uh, the more that the councillors, uh, you know, come up with silly ideas and get into shouting matches and all sorts of things, he's, he looks like the wise man of the whole bunch, right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, I got to congratulate him. And, and I think uh, he was on track with Bordalo. I mean, Charles Bordalo, the chief, he knows. Uh, and Mayor Watson is exactly right. He's been down to the east side of Vancouver, and it's a friggin' it's it's like something out of the apocalypse movie. It's like a night of the living dead. I was walking back, and I said this in my interview with uh, Chief Bordalo. Walking back to my hotel, I'd I'd gone down from. A, a st- I'll tell you exactly in case anybody listening knows Vancouver. I was staying at the Delta near downtown. I walked out of my hotel. It's late at night, but you know you're traveling and your inner clock's all messed up, and I'm like, okay, I'm just sitting staring at the walls of a hotel room, flipping through the 15 TV channels they have. Uh, I'm going for a walk, and I walk down the street, and I see Gastown, 
and it looks nice. Gastown is yeah. beautiful, old part of Vancouver, revitalized. I walk through that. I, this this is beautiful. I can't believe this is here. How could I not notice this? Turn right, yeah. and I end up in the uh, downtown Lower East Side, yeah. walking by just things you would never see in Ottawa. And right. and, and, and this you know, is where maybe, Insight is. And maybe Jim had that moment on the road to Damascus when he went down there and saw that firsthand. He says, you know what? I'm going to break with my progressive buddies uh, in Queens Park and say the hell with this. Yeah, it, it can happen. I, I've got, you know, Diane Deans has been my counselor for a very long time. And Diane's definitely much further the, to the left than I am. But I'll say this. She also is still in her position because she learns how to listen to her constituents. And yep. when the constituents go, no, 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 we, we want roads. We need to be able to drive. She listens. And she listens yeah. on, you know, as a city councilor, it's one of the things I like about municipal politics versus provincial or federal. As a city councilor or a mayor, you have to be willing to listen and compromise. Right. And, right. you know, you get rid of this insane, insane construct that, of the party system. I wish we could do away with some of the strictures that are around party politicians at the federal and provincial levels. Because it just handcuffs people. In the United States, uh, you have Democrats and Republicans that will sometimes vote together, vote against each other. You have people inside the party that will fight each other because they don't have the same power structure that we have with the party leader system. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I wish we had more freedom. Uh, Peter, thanks yeah. for the call. Thank you. 521 Talk, 521 8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility if you want to get in on the conversation. Or if you're shy, you want to email me? Beyond the news at CFRA.com. We'll be back after this. I'm B Lil. This is News Talk 580 CFRA. Every revolution starts with a rebel. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. If you want to join the conversation in the last few minutes of the program, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. But right now, I'm going to ramble a little bit. I'm going to talk a little bit. Tomorrow at 10 a.m., we're going to hear the verdict in a trial of a man whose voice I miss, Mike Duffy. And just in saying that I miss Mike Duffy's voice on the airwaves, that's controversial. Because Mike Duffy, rightly or wrongly, and I would argue wrongly for the most part, has come to epitomize in the minds of some everything that's wrong with the Senate, everything that's wrong with political corruption in Canada. Can I sit here and say that everything that Mike Duffy did was right and correct? No. I think he would admit that in his quieter moments that he made some mistakes. But Mike Duffy was dragged through the mud 
for following a system that had been in place for years before he ever got there. The whole issue of his residency and whether he could be a sitting senator from Prince Edward Island after he'd been a journalist in Ottawa for so many years. Well, let me tell you about another senator who was in the Senate at the same time as Mike Duffy, appointed decades earlier. Her name was Joyce Fairbairn. Joyce Fairbairn came to Ottawa in the 1960s as a journalist. She came to work as a journalist in the Parliamentary Press Gallery, then became a legislative assistant to Pierre Trudeau in 1970. She was communications coordinator for Trudeau's PMO in 1981. And then in 1984, she became one of the senators appointed by Trudeau on his way out the door. Not an unheard move for a prime minister leaving office. But she was appointed a senator for Alberta. Can anyone tell me the last time that Joyce Fairbairn lived in Alberta as a full-time resident. She moved to Ottawa in the 1960s. No one will pick on Joyce Fairbairn now because, well, she has Alzheimer's. Something that many, not all, but many in the Senate knew and kept quiet so they could keep bringing her out for votes even though I'm told that she didn't know what she was voting on at the end. She resigned from the Senate. It was announced that she had Alzheimer's in uh, the end of November 2012. I'd heard about it in August 2012. There were media skirmishes and talk about it, but it it was officially announced in November. She tendered her resignation in January of 2013. She was named to the Order of Canada in 2015. If Mike Duffy's sin is that he moved to Ottawa in the 1960s to work as a journalist, including a stint reporting for this radio station, then why isn't Joyce Fairbairn held to the same standard, to the same account. What about all the other senators appointed for places that they haven't lived full-time in years, appointed by prime ministers of all stripes? Why the difference? Now, I just want to, in in full disclosure, I just want to say that I got to know Mike Duffy as a journalist. When I got to Parliament Hill, when I left CFRA in 2005, having been a reporter for one of the biggest media outlets in this city, having broken story after story on the airwaves here, and then I went up to Parliament Hill to work for what is now our sister station, or sister stations, CJAD in Montreal and News Talk 1010 in Toronto, I kept having... Members of the Parliamentary Press Gallery say, oh, who are you? Have you worked in the business before? 
because to them, when they say, I heard something on the radio, it means that they heard it on the state broadcaster. And when they say they saw something on TV, it means they saw it on the state broadcaster. That's the group pack mentality up there. But Mike Duffy was different. Mike listened to everyone and everything. And when he saw me, he called out, Brian, love your work. He was willing to share stories and share tips as he'd done with younger journalists for years. So, yeah, I have a soft spot for Mike Duffy. And I also have a soft spot for him because I don't think that he's been, that he is the monster that he's been made out to be. Like I said, I'm, I don't know the ins and outs of everything. I've covered the trial to a degree. I think he'll get into trouble for some things. But on the most part, he will be found not guilty. That is what we will walk away from tomorrow. And in the meantime, friendships will have been broken, lives shattered, careers destroyed. Over a man following the rules that people have been following and, and making up for years. If you followed the trial, then you know that Duffy's lawyer, Donald Bain, was able to show that on issues of residency, Mike Duffy was following the rules. There's another trial that's coming, Mac Harb. Liberal senator, former city councilor here in Ottawa, former MP for Ottawa, bought a cottage just outside the limits and then claimed that as his official residency. That, ladies and gentlemen, is far more egregious than what Mike Duffy or Joyce Fairbairn or many others have done. But will Mac Harb, who always lived in downtown in Ottawa Center, will he face the same scrutiny? Will his name be dragged through the mud because it hasn't so far? Something tells me the answer's no. Wilma's called in. We'll give her the last word on this. Wilma, you're on Beyond the News. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so late. But, you know, I just agree with you. Mike Duffy is such a dear person, and he's a friend of mine. And uh, I've been praying for him through all his trials. And seemed like he seemed to be a scapegoat for something, you know, that... Everybody else was into, and uh, I'm so glad that you brought it up. I'm so glad, Mr. Lilly. I'm so glad. Well, thank you. It's okay. Bye bye. Thank you. It's. Um, I'm sure it's not a popular position. I'm sure it's not going to win me plaudits from anyone to say what I've said about Mike. But I've missed his voice on the air because he's gone silent during his trial. And. This is a man who's known so much about Canadian politics, helped so many people, told so many stories, warmed so many hearts over the years. So if you're listening, Mike, God bless you. We'll see how things turn out tomorrow. And maybe tomorrow, after the verdict, one way or another, we'll get to hear your voice again. Like I said, I... I'm not going to tell you Mike is completely innocent. We'll see what the judge says tomorrow. But I think he's been unfairly tarnished. I think he has been scapegoated, as Wilma said. 
I think he has been picked on in ways that other senators have not. And I think that an awful lot of that was a settling of scores from inside the parliamentary press gallery where an awful lot of petty politics takes place. And people decided that when they caught onto something, that they would use it to shove Mike down. And that's a pity. That wraps the show for tonight. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You want to send me an email on this? Beyond the News at CFRA.com. Back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. And remember, I'm on your side.